Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. A quick note just before we start. This episode contains content and language that might not be suitable for everyone. Listener's discretion is advised. Um, It was a holiday weekend. I think it was Memorial Day. In May 2020, Nakima Levy Armstrong was at home relaxing with family when an activist reached out to her. I was suddenly tagged in a Facebook post saying that Minneapolis police had either crushed the, the throat or somehow cut off air for a person who they were trying to arrest and that they had actually killed the man. And I was shocked when I read her Facebook post because I hadn't seen anything in the media. I hadn't seen any live updates, no press conferences, no communication from anyone at MPD. So Nikima, a former civil rights lawyer turned activist, took it upon herself to notify the chief of the Minneapolis Police Department. I texted Chief Arredondo, or I called him, and I asked him whether or not MPD had been responsible for killing someone. And the chief said that from his understanding, Minneapolis officers had been trying to arrest someone and they had a medical emergency, and that person had died in custody. The MPD statement released that day said, Man dies after medical incident during police interaction. This right here has been all over social media today. It reads, he physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance and he died a short time later. It didn't mention the man's name or that officers restrained him on the ground with a knee on his neck. At the time, the chief said he'd only seen the street surveillance footage of the incident. The officer's backs were turned, and he saw no wrongdoing. It was so obvious that he had been intentionally killed, from my perspective, and I just wept. I reached back out to the chief, and I said, you need to see some video as soon as possible. Chief Arredondo would recount these conversations in front of a jury. Probably close to midnight, a community member had contacted me and said, uh, Chief, have you seen the video of your officer choking and killing that, that man at 38th Chicago? The bystander video, of course, was the cell phone footage of George Floyd's murder. Nakima's actions that night forced the chief of police to immediately fire four officers, including Derek Chauvin. But she didn't stop there. She rallied people to take to the streets in peaceful protest for justice. I thought you were fired up and can't take no more. Nakima spent the last seven years campaigning for police reform. 
In fact, law enforcement made her who she is today. She switched careers in 2014 after being tear-gassed and witnessing police brutality during the protest in Ferguson, Missouri after the death of Michael Brown. Since then, she's worked with Black Lives Matter and other groups to push police reform in her home city of Minneapolis. Her activism led to the fight for justice for Jamal Clark, Philando Castile and Michael Brown and has made her a name in Minneapolis. She's the first person others call to explain these issues of injustice to the country. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me. Absolutely. So take us back to that day you made the phone call. I'm Joe Erickson, and this is Systemic a podcast series that tells the stories of those who fight injustice as they attempt to dismantle the status quo. In our final episode, we follow an activist who wants to hold her city accountable for its promises on police reform. She's keeping the conversation moving and seizing the moment for change in a time when the whole world is watching. Part four, dismantle. It's June 2020. In the midst of a huge cleanup following the protest over George Floyd's death, where Minneapolis St. Paul sustained $550 million of damage, residents were desperate to return to normal and start rebuilding parts of the city. But the majority of Minneapolis City Council members gathered in a city park to focus their efforts away from the damage and to reimagine the city's policing and address issues of racial bias. People were here at Powderhorn Park, many still present here on this side of the slope as they watched Minneapolis City Council member, a majority of them, uh, vote in favor of replacing, removing Minneapolis police and replacing them with community-based public safety. The sign in front of the City Council President Lisa Bender led the charge to defund the police. A majority of the Minneapolis City Council stood on a stage with large letters in front of it, spelling out the words, defund police. Thank you to every single one of you who's raising your voice in the streets of Minneapolis. On that day in early June, hundreds gathered in Powderhorn Park, just blocks from Lake Street, the epicenter of unrest following the police killing of George Floyd. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us they came out in full force, nine of them, in June of 2020, and declared they were going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. And they said this in front of a crowd of mostly white people out at Powderhorn Park without having consulted the Black community or done any kind of research whatsoever. 
And it and they didn't even have the legal authority to do what they said that they would do. So that told me everything I needed to know about the priorities of the city council, their devaluing of black life, their hypocrisy, and the fact that they weren't serious about lifting a finger to truly address community members' concerns. The councillors gave no details on their plan for dismantling the police. But through years of pushing reforms to policing in the city, Nikima has her own set of ideas. Part of that means reallocating resources so officers no longer respond to mental health calls and also creating a system that relies less on enforcement by police officers and more on mutual understanding and de-escalation. Nakima believes that change needs to start with hiring officers who live in the community they serve. It is going to take intentional effort, strong disciplinary policies, a shift in hiring, including no longer hiring officers who live outside of city limits, because right now 92% of Minneapolis officers don't even live in the city of Minneapolis, including Derek Chauvin. So our system has created the monster that we see within the Minneapolis Police Department. And it's going to take the people to demand change in order for a paradigm shift to occur. As a community activist, Nikim has worked with several grassroots organizations to collectively apply pressure on the Minneapolis mayor and the governor of Minnesota to cut police funds. They've organized protests at City Hall and held press conferences and community meetings with government officials. By November 2020, Nikima was determined to keep the pressure on authorities, although news of the trial of the Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who was charged with the killing of George Floyd, was good news. Nikima was worried that the national conversation was too focused on a rogue officer, a bad apple, who is an exception rather than the rule. She recalls White House National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien pushing a narrative that only a few officers are giving police a bad name. No, I, I don't think there's systemic racism. I think 99.9% of our law enforcement officers are great Americans. But you know what? There, there are some bad apples in there. And they're, they're, you know, I'm, there are some, some bad cops that are racist. And, and there, there are cops that are, you know, maybe don't have the right training. And there are some that are just, just bad cops. Nakima wanted to change that. We have to make a decision that we are going to rise up, especially on behalf of those who do not have a voice. Period, point blank. She once again took to the streets and steered the conversation to reform. The message of the rally was to change policing where some of the police budget would be reinvested in the neighborhood. We had a rally and then we took to the streets and then we shut down I-94. And as we were marching and peacefully protesting, we were headed towards the exit. And suddenly the state troopers showed up 
and they blocked the exit, trapping hundreds of protesters on I-94 freeway. They are here in full militarized gear. There's even a tank here that some are saying is a sound machine to impact. Nikima was charged with a misdemeanor and obstructing the highway. As a lawyer and activist, she knows how to fight criminal charges, not just for her, but for other protesters. Earlier in the year, Nikima and the ACLU filed a lawsuit against the city of Minneapolis on behalf of protesters who were injured during peaceful demonstrations after the murder of George Floyd. And when she's not fighting charges in court, she's helping protesters who were injured. There was a young man who my daughter knows who got injured at the protests. He, he went and got stitches and he could not, not afford his medical bill or a cast because he doesn't have health insurance. I told my daughter we would cover it. So she just reached out to me saying he needs at least $500. We'll just pay whatever. Yeah. Start with 500 and go. Yeah, whatever it is, because he doesn't have medical insurance. So let's just cover it for him. He's like probably in his 20s. Nakima has devoted herself to the cause. She spends most of her days responding to crises, organizing demonstrations, and meeting with government officials, which leaves little time to be a mum. In the middle of that interview, her four-year-old daughter needed her mum's attention. <laughs> At a demonstration or something, but I've been on NPR. They're early morning, like 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. A flower? Okay, I'll get you a flower. You can't get a flower out of that, because that's a piece of art. But I do have a real purple flower downstairs. Aww. So people sent me flowers and stuff, like flowers and plants and wine. and gifts. So all of that has been helpful for self-care. So I can actually give my baby a real flower when we go downstairs. Lieutenant Bob Kroll gave no interviews and held no press conference after announcing his intention to retire as president of the Minneapolis Police Federation at the end of the month. Kroll told us last summer he would wait until May to retire. Do you plan on resigning? No. What I've got In January 2021, news was breaking that the head of the Minneapolis Police Union Bob Kroll, was retiring. Nikima has wanted Bob Kroll out of the city's policing for years, and she's led a campaign to have him dismissed. I think, unfortunately, y'all are the perfect neighbors to Bob Kroll because your silence enables racism and racism when you ought to be holding him accountable. Over his 31 years on the force, Kroll had 20 internal affairs complaints filed against him, and he was named in a racial discrimination lawsuit targeting the Minneapolis Police Department. He faced suspensions and demotions, and the Civilian Review Authority investigated allegations of him using excessive force. Kroll leaves the police with a barrage of criticism from diverse communities. In a statement to the police union, he thanked officers for their support 
and took the chance to criticize the department. In this letter to union members, Kroll said retirement now was in his family's best interest and included a swipe at MPD and city leadership, writing how weak administrations pandered to armchair quarterbacks and didn't fight for hardworking public servants who wear the badge. His exit was a bittersweet moment. Nakima gathered nearly 20,000 signatures to remove Kroll from his position. But his retirement doesn't feel like justice to her. Even though Bob Kroll deciding to retire early is welcome news, many of us really feel as though the mayor should fire Bob Kroll. He should not be allowed to profit off of his outlandish conduct by receiving a pension and other benefits that retired officers are able to receive. I really wish that our city officials had demonstrated more courage in taking on Bob Kroll and holding him accountable and disciplining him, but they allowed him to get to the point in which he felt that he was above the law. And sadly, Bob Kroll is not alone. There are many officers on the force who act as if it is par for the course to abuse and criminalize Black residents within the city of Minneapolis. Those officers need to be removed immediately from the force in order to usher in a cultural shift within the Minneapolis Police Department and to begin to address some of the longstanding systemic racism and discrimination. When the city council called to defund and change the police, they asked for input from the community. And Nakima, along with others she's worked with, brought forward ambitious ideas for how they could weed out other officers, like Bob Crow and Derek Chavin. One of the elders in our community suggested that every Minneapolis police officer should have to reapply for their jobs. That, to me, is an outstanding solution because it means that you would look at their record of service, complaints, their temperament, and make a decision about how they will add or detract from the culture and whether they deserve to patrol the streets of Minneapolis. If we had strong leadership in the city, something like that is entirely possible. Derek Chauvin's trial fast approaching, now scheduled to begin March 8th. The former Minneapolis police officer is currently facing two counts for his role, pinning a knee to the back of George Floyd's neck for some nine minutes. Second degree murder and second degree manslaughter. It's March 2021. Leading up to the trial of Derek Chauvin, Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz was concerned about public safety. Preparing for the worst, he called in the National Guard making black leaders like Nakima very anxious about the possibilities of conflict during an emotional time. All through the trial, there were hundreds of people gathered at George Floyd Square, the place where he was killed. I expect the Derek Chauvin trial to be traumatic for many people in the community, including myself, because I knew that there would be 
lots of videos being shown that depicted the murder of George Floyd at the hands of Derek Chauvin. And that's exactly what happened. We watched quite a few pieces of bystander videos and um, we saw George Floyd killed from multiple angles. We also saw the callous disregard for George Floyd's life that was exhibited by Derek Chauvin as well as the other three officers involved in his death. It was just so sad, so traumatizing, and it gave us a glimpse into what the lynching era must have felt like for many Black people around this country, to feel helpless when watching a human being have the life being choked out of them. Nakima was surprised by the Minneapolis Police Department's response to the trial. It's very rare that a police officer will turn in another police officer. So Chief Aridando's testimony was a turning point. It is completely unusual for a police chief as well as multiple officers, including high-level officers, to testify against a fellow officer because of what is known as the Blue Wall of Silence. The Blue Wall of Silence is a code of conduct for police officers, essentially a no-snitching code for cops, whereby no matter what a police officer does, whether it's caught on camera or it's not, you don't rat them out. You don't snitch on them. You don't tell investigators what really happened. And that blue wall of silence has been responsible for a very toxic, violent, dangerous, deadly, anti-Black, misogynistic, and white supremacist culture within the Minneapolis Police Department, as well as police departments around the country. Of course, I do not subscribe to the bad apples theory. I believe that the entire tree, the root, the system is rotten. And that's how you could get someone like Derek Chauvin being hired in the first place. As Derek Chauvin's trial played out, Nakima had another course to take to the streets. Body camera video released today shows the moment when 20-year-old Dante Wright, a black man, was shot and killed at the hands of police Sunday afternoon. Wright was pulled over for driving with expired tags, and police discovered he had a warrant out for his arrest. Just 11 miles from where George Floyd was murdered, there was another fatal shooting of a black man in Brooklyn Center. Officer Kim Potter said at the time she meant to use a taser, but mistakenly drew her gun instead, even though the taser had a bright yellow strip and was noticeably larger than a gun. A state of emergency has been declared in Minneapolis. Here in Brooklyn Center, a curfew is in place, but more protests are expected tonight. We are here outside of the Brooklyn Center Police Department, and there's quite a large crowd. Nikima broke curfew and joined protesters on the streets. It's a lot of young people out here. It's a lot of energy out here. I'm just like really in awe that people are continuing to come 
every night, like, and standing up and standing firm and standing strong. So it should be interesting. This time, the police outnumbered the protesters on the streets of Brooklyn Center. Although most of the protests were peaceful, there were incidents of police using rubber bullets and tear gas. Hundreds of protesters took to the streets outraged. Marching to the Brooklyn Center Police Station where the situation escalated. Police deploying rubber bullets, tear gas and flashbangs. During all this, Nikima still had to steel herself for the jury's verdict in the Derek Chauvin case. Finally, on April 20th, 2021, after 10 hours of deliberations, the jury came back with a guilty, guilty, guilty verdict. Hundreds of protesters gathered at George Floyd Square. There were screams of excitement and tears of joy among the protesters. I felt a sense of relief. I felt a sense of peace. I also had tears streaming down my face. I was in a room with other uh, women of color um, who were in media, and they too were uh, crying and also celebrating the guilty verdict in that particular case. I think in terms of how our community has been impacted It's been historic to finally see a white police officer be found guilty of murdering a black person. This is the first time that anything like this has happened in Minnesota history, and it's long overdue. Thank you for agreeing to do this. You should be out celebrating. So thank you for agreeing to talk to me. Absolutely. Shortly after the verdict was announced, Oprah Winfrey reached out to Nakima. In a Zoom interview, Oprah thanked Nakima for her grassroots activism. They shared their joy that justice was seen to be done and the community could live in that moment forever. This was an emotional time for all African Americans. And I heard you with Gail saying, and now we got to continue working. I, I was saying, Akima, can we just have one day? Can we just have one day? Can we just have one day? Can we just feel this before <laughs> we get back to work? <laughs> but Nakima didn't have that day. Her thoughts quickly moved on to the police shooting of Dante Wright. You would think that police officers would be more careful given the worldwide scrutiny that the Twin Cities was facing in the state of Minnesota in light of the killing of George Floyd, but instead we experienced business as usual, recklessness, um, black bodies being viewed as a threat, and it resulted in Dante's life being taken. The officer who killed him, Kim Potter, 
so far has only been charged with manslaughter. We have been showing up outside the home of Pete Orpit, who is the Washington County attorney who is responsible for reviewing the case and bringing charges in the case. And we've been demanding murder charges against Kim Potter. We think that that's the bare minimum of what should happen in this situation. We know that had Dante Wright been a white boy, he never would have been pulled over in the first place, nor would Kim Potter have decided to pull out a taser, nor would she have used deadly force against a young black man who was really just minding his own business. He's a father of an almost two-year-old boy who will never get to see his dad again. Minnesota has moved forward with some police reforms. Governor Tim Walz signed a ban on neck restraints and chokeholds into law in July 2020 as a part of the Minnesota Police Accountability Act. But in Minneapolis, people like Nikima are not seeing change. We have some of the highest racial disparities in the country across every key indicator of quality of life including contact with police, including high rates of criminalization, including high unemployment rates, high rates of violence in some of our most vulnerable communities. And these city council members have done literally nothing to address these issues. So what happened to the optimism of Minneapolis city council members and their plans to defund the police? It's been a year that didn't live up to the big promise. They rolled back their original plans to reduce police budgets and reinvest in mental health services. The council president, Lisa Bender, initially proposed eliminating 183 sworn officers' positions, despite concerns about how such cuts would impact the already rising crime rates. Her pledge to cut officers didn't materialise. But the council did manage to take a small part of the $179 million police budget. About $8 million went to public safety and mental health resources. The failure to notably move the needle on policing caused Bender and other city council members like Alandra Cano not to seek re-election. The promises they made to communities of colour were supposed to restore trust in local government. Instead, what it has done is create feelings of distrust and communities are left disillusioned by politics. When I first started this project, I was swept along with the enthusiasm of this moment, a time when change looked possible. A year on, there were still new cases of police shootings of black people. Throughout the series, I've seen how people are making changes around the country on police reform, black officers pushing to change police culture, activists demanding less policing, and more targeted resources for crises. 
but change in a rigid system that doesn't bend is hard. And when you can't change the system, do you allow the system to change you? Or does something else have to happen? Before releasing this project, I reached out to the people we featured to see if their views have shifted. Not surprisingly, most of them hadn't. But Ray Brown, the Minnesota rookie officer from the first episode, told me that she was reflecting differently on her career path and recorded one last message. The more I adjust to life as a new police officer, the more I question whether or not this career is for me in the long haul. Looking at, you know, the beginning of this project and everything that's happened from the time that I've been hired, I can't help but question whether or not sometimes those intersections of being black and being in law enforcement are too much, um, too heavy, maybe too heavy for me at times. I'm still a police officer. Um, I still enjoy my job. I just think some days my job is a lot heavier than I expected it to be or I was prepared for it to be. I can have plenty of people tell me thank you and they support law enforcement, but it always sticks out when you have the person who looks like you or looks like your mother or your father and tells you that you're a sellout or you're not black enough. You come into this career and you say, I want to make a difference. I want to change my community. I want to change the way that my community feels about this agency. And it always leaves a question in the back of my mind, like, will you or will I specifically be able to achieve a real change in this uniform or does that start somewhere else? You've been listening to Systemic from Colorado Public Radio. The series was reported and produced by me, Joe Erickson, with additional production and mixing from Rebecca Romberg. The series was edited by Dennis Funk. Our theme music was written by Daniel Mesher. Brad Turner and Kevin Dale are the executive producers Additional editorial support was provided by Luis Antonio Perez, Rachel Estabrook, and Elena Rivera. John Mossman is our fact-checker. Thanks also to Kim Wynn, Jody Gersh, Clara Shelton, Mia Rincon, and Dave Burdick. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Joe. Since you listened to the whole episode... I have a quick favour to ask you. Take a moment to find Systemic from Colorado Public Radio on whatever podcast app you use and give us a like, a rating or a review. 
If you think the stories we're sharing are important, if you think the voices in Systemic deserve to be heard, all you have to do to help spread the word is like us, rate us, or review us. It helps others find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio.